Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've taken care of our sin and that it cost you a lot giving your son for us. And Lord, we thank you for that. And, and I, Lord, I pray that um, as we gather, as we worship, as we sing about what you've done, as we talk about uh, in your word of what you've done, at the end of the service as we sit at the table and we remember what you have done, Lord, I pray that we would just marvel at your incredible saving grace, that as we uh, look at Scripture and we see uh, just how the gospel has advanced, how it reached the ends of the earth, and how the gospel even uh, after almost 2,000 years have reached us, Lord, help us not to take for granted the privilege. But Lord, help us just to be in awe of your incredible saving grace. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that you'd make yourself known. Lord, I thank you uh, that we can take uh, time to, to celebrate fathers. I thank you uh, for the wonderful fathers that you've blessed us with. I thank you for the fathers uh, that are here um, in this room that are leading their families. Lord, and I pray that, uh, that you would bless them, that you would use them. Lord, help them uh, to understand and take their responsibility serious as a dad, as a father, to be the spiritual leader, to be the one who faithfully points uh, his children and his wife to the Lord. And Lord, I pray for those that uh, might be uh, grieving as they think about their father who've passed away. Lord, I pray that in this time that you would comfort them. And Lord, I pray for those that who want to be fathers, and it's a difficult uh, for them to have children. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them as well. And so, Lord, please speak to us through your word. Uh, make yourself known to us, um, and help us just to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be consumed by you and captivated uh, by you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Um, what a wonderful day, and uh, just uh, hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. Um, but if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to the book of Acts as we are almost at the end of our series. We're finally um, in the last chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 28, uh, verse 1. And then next week, God willing, we will land the plane on our series through the book of Acts. And it looks like we spent almost 40 weeks uh, through the book of Acts. And hopefully you've enjoyed uh, your time. Um, starting in the, the first Sunday in July, we're going to go through the book of Nahum, uh, where we're going to talk about the goodness of God um, and the comfort of God, but then also the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That's going to be um, in July. Um, but let me catch you all up to speed as we look at Acts chapter 28. And so Paul is on his way to Rome, and sailing straight from Caesarea to Rome should have only taken him about five weeks, and yet after everything is said and done, this trip took him well over 16 weeks. And so as they made their way to Rome, a storm called the Nor'easter came from the mountains, took a hold of the ship, and so the ship was battered by the storm, and they were just drifting away from their destination. And after many days of the storm just raging and just beating the boat, we find the sailors and the crew kind of hopeless, directionless, and even hungry. And so Paul encourages them with the word of the Lord, saying, look, look the Lord is faithful in keeping his promises. He, he told me I'm going to make it to Rome. He told me that none of you are going to lose your lives. Yes, we'll lose the cargo. Yes, we'll lose the ship. But you will not lose your life. And then we come to Acts chapter 27, verse 44, and, and we see how the Lord 
kept his promises, how everyone made it safely to shore and they did not lose their lives and indeed they lost the cargo and the ship. Now, as we enter into the final leg of the trip from Malta to Rome, not only do we see the faithfulness of God and keeping his word, but one of the things I want to draw our attention to and really focus on is how we see not just only the Lord being faithful, but we also see Paul being faithful to the mission of Jesus Christ where his heart was focused on the mission of sharing Christ rather than allowing his circumstances to shut him down. And he made the most of every opportunity by making Christ known effectively. And so as we look at the passage, I want us to focus on not just the faithfulness of the Lord, but the faithfulness of Paul. So let's look at Acts chapter 28, verse 1. It says this, Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. And as Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man no doubt is a murderer. Even though he escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook, off the, he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. And after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, obviously, the survivors must have breathed a sigh of relief when they finally made the shore. Their feet touched the ground after over two weeks in a raging storm and the waves battering the ship. They lost their cargo. The, the, the ship hit a sandbar. They're thinking this is the end of their lives and they finally made it to shore. And immediately we see how the locals extended hospitality by making a fire. And you can just imagine how great this fire felt and because they've been for two weeks in cold and rain and wind and finally they're sitting around a fire safe and they're being warmed and right away what what happens Paul doesn't just sit around the fire but as a servant leader he gathers sticks for the fire and in his search he picks up more than a stick he finds himself finding a snake now I find it really interesting that Luke doesn't really tell us Paul's reaction to the snake other than just shaking it off and, and he doesn't really tell us how Paul felt or how he responded to the snake bite and what was going through his mind but rather he draws our attention to the islanders and what their view was and what was going through their mind and I think the reason why he does it is because he's showing us that this is not really about Paul and that a snake actually bit him but it was really about God intervening and making himself known to these superstitious islanders and there are the islanders their immediate reaction was almost like karma clearly this guy did something really really bad he escaped the shipwreck but a poisonous snake bit him he is as good as dead and they say justice which was a personified goddess is not going to allow Paul to live And so when the natives saw after a while that nothing was happening to Paul, instead of thinking that he was a murderer, they changed their thought to now him possibly being a god. 
And really what, what I think we see in our text, obviously this was a great miracle, but we really see the grace and kindness of God towards these islanders. How he makes himself known to the islanders. How the God of the universe, the God of the sea who created everything is with Paul. And what we've seen throughout the book of Acts in this theme is how God makes himself known to various different people in various different ways through miracles to get their attention so that they can hear the word of the Lord. And so as they were surprised by these events, how how Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake and nothing is happening to him, Paul is probably shocked how a simple snake bite can bring about a ministry opportunity to minister to these islanders. And what we're going to see in verse 7 is how Paul takes advantage of this opportunity, how he ministers to them uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, here's our focus of our text. Like, look at the faithfulness of Paul in the mission of God, how his heart is focused on the mission of Christ, making him known effectively rather than wallowing in his own self-pity, feeling bad for himself, thinking, man, I can't catch a break. I just escaped the shipwreck. Now I have a snake bite. Like, can life get in? any worse he doesn't wallow but instead he takes every opportunity to make Christ known look at verse 7 it says this now in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery Paul went to him, and praying and laying his hand on him, he healed him. And after this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they, healed, so they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. So here again, uh, this snake by, and all of a sudden, Paul comes in contact with the leading man of the island, Publius, and, and Luke says he hosted us for three days. And it's another example of Paul uh, establishing relationships with leading figures so that he may share the gospel. But, but I think in our text, it also serves a, a wonderful example of we're seeing unbelievers displaying kindness and hospitality, and also how Paul responds to the kindness and hospitality hospitality. Now, now think about this. It's a small thing, but, but I want to draw to your attention. Think about how Paul responded to the kindness and the hospitality of an unbeliever. He could have acted like a Pharisee. He could have acted like Peter, who almost did not engage with Cornelius in his household. He could have said, you know what? I am not accepting the hospitality from Publius or these islanders, and rather accepting the hospitality, I'm just going to withdraw myself and not mingle with these people. But he didn't act like that. Instead, he acted like Jesus, who engaged the life of the islanders, who accepted the hospitality of these unbelievers so that he may point them to himself or Paul pointing him to Jesus Christ. And I think this is a great little lesson for us to, to, to learn. We can learn from Paul and Jesus by accepting hospitality from unbelievers, accepting their kindness so that we may engage them in their life with Jesus Christ. But not just accepting it, but also displaying hospitality as it provides for us opportunities to minister to them. 
And we see in, in verse 8, we learn about Publius's father who was sick with a fever. And this fever could have lasted probably for months. And yet without an invitation, without Publius saying, hey, my father is sick, can you pray for him? Paul just took the initiative. Paul went up to Publius's father and just laid his hands on him, prayed over him. The reason why he did this is he wanted to show that it is God's power that's healing him, not Paul in his own power. And by praying, saying, God, heal him, he's showing everybody around that the God that he serves has the power to heal the sick. And by doing so, again, Paul doesn't feel sorry for himself. He's not thinking about his situation like I'm a prisoner that's held unjustly. I should not be here. I'm a a, a shipwreck survivor. I'm a snakebite survivor. Woe is me. But instead, he takes hold of every single opportunity. His heart is focused on the mission of Christ, making the most of his time as he makes Christ known effectively. And so we see Paul doing this in every single opportunity. And so news spreads about him quickly. And soon all the islanders are bringing their sick for Paul to lay his hands on, to pray over them so that God would miraculously heal them. Now, now Luke does not tell us how Paul shared the gospel or that he shared the word. And and I think maybe the reason why is because Luke is in a rush to get to the climax of the story, which we're going to talk in the next couple verses. But Luke sees, shows us the response to, to Paul and his ministry. They showed us more kindness. They provided for the provision for the rest of our trip. Now, this wasn't just a tiny little gift basket of saying thank you, because remember how many people were part of the crew. Last week we saw there were 276 men for this, on this crew. And they had to provide for them food and resources for another week or so. So this was not a tiny little gift, but it was a huge gift out of their gratitude of what Paul has done as he ministered to them with the gospel. And now we find ourselves at the final leg of this trip in verse 11. It says this, After three months, obviously after winter, We set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day, we came to Petulio. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. Now, if you like to take notes in your Bibles, Circle this one phrase at the end of verse 14. And so we came to Rome. Verse 15 says this, Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and has come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius in the three taverns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And notice verse 16, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. Now, once the travel went on their way, the crew first stopped at Syracuse and for three days, and then they went on to Regium at the toe of the Italian mainland. Now, not long after that, they finally reached Putelli, which is the port of, 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 of Neapolis, which is present-day Naples. So where they stopped in Italy, it's about 130 miles south of Rome. 
And notice again the kindness that Julius showed him, that as they're traveling, he's allowing Paul to visit brothers and sisters wherever they're going. So for for a seven-day rest, he allows Paul to visit with these Christians in these areas. And and the reason for such a long rest is because Julius knows that it's a long hike, and so he probably wants to rest all of the crew and all of the prisoners so that they may make it by foot for the remainder of the trip. And it's also possible that these Christians that Paul engaged also provide a provision for the rest of the trip. But notice in verse 14, the verse I told you to highlight. He says, and so we came to Rome. But then look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, when we entered Rome. Okay, so so what's happening here? Verse 14 says, and so we came to Rome. Verse 16 says, and so we entered Rome. Like, like, is Luke confused here or, or what? And so there's, there's this various explanations of what he possibly could thinking. It could be that Luke was probably eager to get to the climax of the story of Acts in verse 14. And he says, and so we came to Rome. Or, 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 or maybe it could be in a sense, he says, in a sense you can look at verse 14 and says, here is how we came to Rome. Or, or maybe he considered Putelli uh, kind of the greater Rome area. Or, or maybe he was saying it is as good as if we are in Rome. But what I, whatever explanation you want to believe, like I, I think verse 14b is the climax of the entire story of the book of Acts. Because think about the gravity of this verse. In the book of Acts, it starts with Jesus making a promise and a command before his ascension. And Jesus looks at his followers and the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, and he says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria into the ends of the earth. Now, think about this incredible mission. It's like a mission impossible. To 11 disciples that have already messed up and maybe 123 followers. And they had to start the gospel in Jerusalem, the very place that rejected Jesus and killed Jesus, and now they have to start the gospel in Jerusalem. And not just there, it somehow has to advance through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And these people don't even know where the ends of the earth is. No social media. No mass following. 123 people. And we walk through the entire book of Acts. And we see how the gospel is advancing. And we see all the roadblocks and all the opposition. And Luke kind of skips over the whole Malta thing just so that he can get to verse 14 and say, and so we came to Rome. In other words, what he's almost trying to say is, the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. Because everything that enters Rome It's like the center of the world. Once it goes in Rome, it goes out from Rome. And I don't want us just to read verse 14 and say, oh, nice, he made it. I want you to feel the gravity and the price of how the gospel advanced. 
but we'll talk about it in a little bit. And so as Paul was on his way to Rome, technically in verse 14, they have not made it to Rome. And as they're walking to Rome, where, where they are at the, at the toe of, of Italy, which is about a five-day walk from Rome, and there's two main roads. The road's called the Champion Way and the Appian Way. And when word reached the church in Italy that, that, that Paul is here, we see some of the brothers and sisters actually along the way to, to meet Paul. We, we see some of them that meet Paul about 43 miles from Rome, and then some of them meet him 10 miles closer to the capital. And when Paul sees them, Luke tells us that he thanked God and he took courage. Like, again, think about, about Paul, two and a half years of difficult travel, trusting the Lord that he's going to make it to Rome, and as he's walking the last 46 miles, he sees these brothers and sisters coming from afar, meeting him, and it immediately encouraged his heart. It reminded him of the faithfulness of God and how the gospel has advanced. And now Paul finally making it to Rome. Paul's almost like a, a symbol of the gospel advancing as now the gospel has made it into Rome and will be further solidified to be sent out to the ends of the earth. So, so I think this is, this is all the text we're going to look at other than Colossians, Philippians. But in Acts, we're going to just stop here. I, I think two things we can learn from this text if you're taking notes and the significance of Paul making it to Rome. Uh, the, the very first thing I think we can learn is, first of all, we can rejoice in the saving grace of God. Rejoice in the saving grace of God. Now, I know this is not a profound thing to learn, but I, I want you to think about this. If you are a Christian, the gospel has reached you. Just, just think about this. The gospel has reached you. It somehow came to you. And this is a beautiful and a wonderful miracle that we shouldn't take it for granted. But here's why we do take it for granted. We live in such a narcissistic culture that it's really all about us. We don't see the significance of the gospel reaching us. So that when we, 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 in our narcissistic culture, when we look to God, we're think, you're thinking, well, well, so what? The gospel came to me. The gospel is supposed to come to me because it's God's job to save me. That's what he does. His job is to save everybody. So, so what that it came to me? And I think what we have to realize is, first of all, the gospel did not have to come to you. God does not have to save you. It's not his job. He's not obligated to. There are people throughout the centuries that have not heard the gospel, and the gospel will never reach them. Like, like that is the reality of it. And you might be thinking, well, that's unfair. The gospel should be reaching them. No, the gospel should not be reaching them. It's not God's job. He's not obligated to. That's what grace is. Grace is, is you're getting something that you did not deserve. You did not deserve to hear the gospel. You did not deserve for Jesus to die on the cross for you. And yet somehow by God's grace, the gospel came to you. And there was no obligation by God. There are people who will never hear the gospel. 
And after almost 2,000 years, the gospel starting in Jerusalem slowly but surely made its way, has been preserved under the most attack, had survived centuries of false doctrine, unbelief, attack from the world, attack from the enemy, has traveled through wars, through emperors, through kings, through rulers, through dictators, and it reached you. And not only did it reach you, by God's grace, He gave you the ability to understand it. And so when we look at our text of how the gospel came to Rome, it shouldn't just be like, oh, he finally made it. I'm so glad for Paul. But it should cause us to, to rejoice. It should cause a stirring in our hearts about, think about the incredible saving grace of God. Did Paul have to make it to Rome? Could he have died shipwrecked? Could he have died by a snake bite? Absolutely. But yet God did not allow him to die. God saved him because God was persistent in his mission for the gospel reaching Rome. And the gospel has reached us. So I want you to marvel at that. I don't want you to, to take that, that for granted. Marvel at his grace. I think this, the second thing we can learn is the significance of Paul making it to Rome. Not only do we rejoice in the saving grace of God, but the second thing is we can align ourselves with the mission of God. Like we can align ourselves with the mission of God. Like the entire Acts chapter 27 and Acts chapter 28 reminds us of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's a reminder of the fulfillment of you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, God's mission is not some local mission, but it's a global mission that extends to the ends of the earth, that reaches past generations. And what a mission it is. And so not only do we, or do we, do we rejoice in, in God's saving grace and the fact and the reality that, man, the gospel has reached me, that should make us align ourselves with the mission of God. In other words, making sure that the gospel continues to advance from generation to generation, from ocean to ocean, from continent to continent. And it all starts with, with us realizing what privilege we have received. Think about an heirloom that's been given to you that you cherish and that one day you want to pass on to your children and you want them to cherish it. This should be the gospel to us. It is the greatest thing you could inherit and it's the greatest thing you could pass on. And so I think, again, the this, this story should, should just help us rejoice in God's saving grace. It should stir our hearts to align ourselves to the mission of God, which, which I want to end with this, like with this question, okay, like, like how do we align ourselves with the mission of God? Like, like again, think about Paul here. Paul's a prisoner, but look at the freedom he has as a prisoner. Look at verse 16. It says this, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. 
So he wasn't technically in a jail. He was under house arrest. And what did he do with his time? Look at verse 30 and 31, the end of Acts. Paul stayed two whole years on his, in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, with all boldness and without hindrance. So what does that mean? Paul's a prisoner, and instead of complaining, he was proclaiming. He took every opportunity of whoever would visit him, even the guards, to proclaim the gospel to them. And so in one of his letters to the church in Colossae, while he was in prison, this is what he writes to them. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, he says, Devote yourself to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open doors to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am enchained so that I may make it known as I should. And then he says, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. Like, don't, don't miss Paul's devotion to the mission of God. He's writing to the church of Colossae, and he says, hey, continue to pray for me so that I may make Christ known effectively, so that I may make the most of my time. And then he gives them the instructions, and I think he follows his own advice. Make the most of your time. Don't waste it. See every opportunity as a gospel opportunity. Don't look at the circumstances of your life. Focus on what is most important. And this is what Paul did. And later on in Philippians, we'll find how, as he was chained to an imperial guard, what did he do? He shared the gospel. And as the guards were rotating to relieve one another, what did Paul do? He made the most of his time by sharing the gospel. So, so the original question is, how do we align ourselves with the mission of God? Uh, the very first thing, if you're taking notes, is first of all, keeping our hearts focused on Jesus and on his mission. Keeping our hearts focused on Jesus and on his mission. I, I don't know about you. I'm pretty sure, I'm 100% sure it's true for you because it's true for me. We are a people that are quick to get distracted. Like, it's easy to keep our eyes on Jesus, and then something happens, and all of a sudden, you're all over the place. You, you will remind yourself of what is important, and then something happens, a phone call, and all of a sudden, you completely forgot what was important. And it's this daily struggle, this, this daily fight of us being distracted of what is important, us being distracted of what's valuable to us, the things we should say yes to and the things we should say no to. And we, we find ourselves all over the place, not trying to figure out what's important and we kind of mix up our values and, and make bad decisions because we are people that are quick to get distracted. And if we want to align ourselves with the mission of God, we have to keep our hearts and our minds focused on Jesus and his mission. And this is why it's so important for the gathering of the saints. This is so important of why we should live in biblical community, where we help one another get focused, where we help reorient our hearts. This is, if you think about the table, what does the lettering say in front of the table? In his remembrance, 
Why? Because we get distracted. We forget. And so this is why we gather around the table to constantly remind ourselves who Jesus is, what he has done, and what is the most important thing in life. And I think this is, it's not just a thing you do once a week. It's something you have to do daily as you reorient your heart, as you reorient your mind. And I, I think Paul got distracted. And I think Paul found himself maybe even wallowing in his own self-pity. But he constantly was disciplined and reorienting his heart and his mind. Notice who he constantly spent time with when he had a free moment with other brothers and sisters. Why? Because he needed these brothers and sisters to remind him of what is important. And that's true for you and for me. The, the second thing is how do we align ourselves with the mission of God? Not just only keeping our hearts and our mind focused on Jesus and his mission, but also making the most of our time. Making the most of our time. Not, not wasting it. And here's what I know about us. Um, not only are we a distracted people, but these distractions are a waste of time. Like, like, seriously, I love a smartphone, but how much time do you waste on it? A bathroom break that should take two minutes end up taking 15 minutes? Come on. Like, we waste our time. Like, and what do we say? Oh, I'm just so busy. I don't have enough time. It's like, no, we waste time. We spend our times on things that are not important. And if we want to align ourselves with the mission of God, like not only should we keep focused on Him, even in our distractions, constantly reorient ourselves, but we need to use our time effectively. And again, I think Paul is a wonderful example. He finds himself in jail. Now you're thinking, great, he has all the free time in the world. And what does he do? He uses it to proclaim the gospel. This is what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Verse 19 says this, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, if I live in on the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. In other words, what he's saying is, look, I'm in prison. I know my fate. I'm as good as dead. And yet I don't feel sorry for myself because I am in Jesus Christ. And for me to live while I'm in jail proclaiming the gospel, that's fruitful work. For me to die, that's even better because I get to be with, with Christ. And he says, because of this imprisonment, the gospel is advancing and it's making people more bold. And I think, again, when we see Paul, how he used his time to making the Lord known. 
And the last one, how do we align ourselves with the, with the, with the mission of Christ? It's not only keeping our hearts focused on Him, not wasting our time, but using it effectively. The last one is being consumed with Jesus Christ. Like at the end of the day, here's the main thing. Paul was a man consumed by Christ. Why? The reason why he was so consumed by Christ, because he constantly marveled at the grace of God. In his mind, he's thinking, I was an enemy of God, wanting to eradicate his church. And he did not give me what I deserved. He did not destroy me. But in his mercy and in his grace, he opened up my eyes and he called me to himself to participate in this great mission. So the question, I, I think it's good for us to constantly ask, and I've brought this up throughout the book of Acts. Are you consumed with Christ? Are you captivated by Christ? I think that's a question you should write down. I think that's a question you should constantly ask yourself. And the second question to follow up is, what are you going to do about it? Now, now I think there's a right response and a wrong response, okay? The wrong response is, I need to try harder. I need to do better. No. You trying harder and doing better is not going to help you get captivated by Christ. The only response and the right response is, I need Christ. I need Christ. The only way for you to be captivated by Him, consumed by Him, is Christ. So instead of turning to you and trying harder, you need to run to Christ. You need to rest in Christ. You need to cling to Christ instead of trying harder. Uh, In in my personal study, I've been uh, reading through the book of John, and there's this interesting phrase I found. It's a phrase that all of us are familiar with. But I read the phrase in three chapters, chapter 14, 15, and 16. And and normally when there's a phrase in the Bible, it's important. But when it's repeated like twice and three times in consecutive chapters, the author is trying to convey something. And it's this phrase, and I know all of you are familiar with this phrase because you've heard it in all the other Gospels, but not really in John. And it's this phrase, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give you. So we're familiar with that phrase and all the other Gospels when Jesus teaches about prayer, but we haven't really read it in John, and yet it appears three times. And, and, and what's going on in the major theme in, in, in chapter 14, 15, and 16 is Jesus kind of talking to his disciples about this perfect unity he has with his Father. He uses this phrase, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. If you believe me, you believe my Father. I do the work of my Father. As I glorify my Father, my Father will glorify me. And it's, it's kind of constantly talking about this beautiful unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then almost inviting his disciples to participate in this beautiful union. And then as he's praying for his disciples to the Father, he constantly uses this phrase. That whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give me. And so, so here, here's the point I, I'm trying to make to you. Is that whatever you ask in the name of Jesus to the Father, He will give you. If you want to be consumed with Jesus and be captivated by Jesus, what do you do? 
You don't try harder. You ask the Father in the name of Jesus. And what's the promise? The promise is He will give it to you. This is what we see in the life of Paul. And what we need to do is we need to start believing. We need to keep clinging to these promises as we want more of Christ, be consumed with Christ, captivated by Christ, as we align ourselves with the mission of Christ and take this gospel that has reached us and pass it on to the next generation and to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, I am so grateful that somebody shared the gospel with me, that somebody shared the gospel with us. And even though at first it was a foolish message that we didn't really understand, you open up our eyes. And what a wonderful message it is that has radically transformed our lives. And Lord, my, my prayer for us today Help us not to take for granted your incredible saving grace and the fact that the gospel has reached us. Lord, help us to align ourselves with your mission. Help us to reorient our hearts and our minds. As we get ready to sit at the table, I think the reason why we need to share, sit at the table every Sunday is because one of the main purposes of this table is to remind us of who Christ is and what he's done. When we find ourselves in the hustle and bustle of life and we find ourselves quickly to get distracted by the worries of this world, the troubles of this world, We find ourselves here on Sunday morning as we're gathering among brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get to sit at this table and it reminds us of who we are. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. We get to sit at the table not because we had a good week or even a bad week. We get to sit at the table because of what Christ has done for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. We are children of the king, heirs to the kingdom. And and so as we we get ready to, to, to distribute these elements, use this time to reorient your heart. Use this time, ask the Lord to help you to be captivated by him. Ask the Lord to help you to be consumed by Him. Ask the Lord to help you to reorient your heart. Ask the Lord to help you to discern what is important and what is not. Ask the Lord to to help you feel the gravity of His saving grace so that you can marvel at it. And you're not doing it hoping He would answer. You're doing it knowing He will answer because Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. 
He has already made himself known. It is as good as done. Cling to it. Let me pray for us and then we distribute these elements as you pray, as you meditate on God's goodness and what he's done for you. Lord, I, I pray that, uh, that this time will be a sweet time. That you would reorient our hearts, our minds, our eyes. That we would look to you, that we'd be consumed by you. That we would never be satisfied, that we would always want more. And that as we eat the body and we drink the blood, we are reminded about your incredible grace that you've lavished on us. And that when we were undeserving enemies of God, Lord Jesus, you laid down your life for us. You took care of our sin on the cross. It's in Jesus' name, amen.